This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 15th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about parenting before conception. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The theme of this week's special issue on parenting is our non-genetic legacy, What gets passed to children outside the vital DNA strands that make up its genome? I spoke with Michelle Lane about her contribution to the theme, preconception parenting. It's been known for some time that a mother's health and her lifestyle during pregnancy impacts on the health of the pregnancy, the growth and development of the fetus, and ultimately affecting the health of her newborn baby. However, emerging evidence suggests that, in fact, lifestyle and health choices of the mother both before pregnancy and also during the very early stages of pregnancy, even before she knows she's pregnant, may also influence the pregnancy, the growth and development of the fetus and impact on the child. And what's probably even more interesting is that there's also now clear evidence for influences of a father's health and lifestyle before conception that affects not only his own fertility, but can also influence the pregnancy and affect the health of the offspring, with evidence from animal models suggesting that this influence can actually go across generations suggesting some sort of developmental programming that can be transmitted at least through two generations. Your article specifically refers to parenting before conception. What factors before conception have a big impact on the embryo and development? So most of the work that's been done to date has really been focused around diet, with a particular emphasis on overnutrition and obesity, given that it's such an enormous contributor to the health burden that we're all facing at the moment. Although there is also some work on undernutrition, low-protein diets, as well as things such as smoking, inflammation, stress, and 
probably more relevant to the father, also some work done on the impacts of paternal age. Mm -hmm. One of the mechanisms for recording the maternal environment, these, you know, preconception factors is epigenetics. Can you give us an example of how these markers are affected by different influences? In regards to obesity, maternal obesity before conception has been shown to cause many structural changes to the oocyte and the egg itself, such as changes to the mitochondria, the oocyte maintains lipid droplets, there's evidence of stress to things such as the endoplasmic reticulum, which is altering signaling pathways in the oocyte, as well as an altered metabolic response. And as the oocyte matures, it also accumulates a lot of epigenetic marks, both on its DNA and also on its histones. And there's been reports such as in a zinc-deficient maternal diet where there's been changes to the methylation marks in the oocyte that are altered. And the most interesting thing is, is that these perturbations seem to exist and continue to persist in the embryo after fertilization. Well, that was going to be my next question. Have these persisted any further than the embryo at fertilization, any of these changes that you're recognizing at preconception stages? To date, most of the work has been associative in terms of there's been an, applied to the mother an observation around some epigenetic or mitochondrial structural changes in the oocyte, which then when we look at the phenotype of the offspring has been shown to alter offspring metabolic health. Probably the one example where there's been a direct effect has been using mitochondria function, where if we artificially dampen down mitochondrial function in the oocyte of the embryo, we've shown that it persists in the embryo. We see changes in the growth and size of the fetus, as well as the changes in the molecular profile of some of the tissues, such as in the brain. And this was even if the experimental paradigm just isolated the mitochondrial disturbance just to the first 48 hours after fertilization and then removed the stress, we still saw these persistent changes in terms of the growth trajectory of the fetus. Let's switch to the father's side now for a bit. Are any of these effects seen due to the father's diet or you know, his contribution to the conception materials? Yeah, this idea that the father's lifestyle and dietary sort of choices might also impact on the pregnancy is actually very, very new. There's now been several studies in men showing that lifestyle factors such as smoking, obesity, and also aging affects the molecular composition of the sperm. In animal models, this has been shown to occur at multiple layers of the epigenetic machinery with changes in methylation, changes in acetylation both in mature sperm as well as during spermatogenesis, as well as alterations in the microRNA content of the sperm. And also paternal age has been associated with methylation changes in the sperm, in the human, mm -hmm. as well as smoking actually alters the content of the non-coding RNAs, including microRNAs in the sperm. You also talk about non-genetic, non-epigenetic factors, like uh, non-coding RNA and the components of the seminal fluid. What role might they play in some of these effects? So at the moment, this research is really very new and sort of in its infancy. As far as seminal plasma is concerned, the composition of seminal plasma has just recently been shown to also be influenced by, for example, obesity in humans. But using animal models where we can actually remove, surgically remove the male accessory glands, it's been shown that if you do that in an animal model, you actually alter the postnatal growth as well as things such as anxiety and behavior in the offspring. And the embryos in those models, if we look at the embryos themselves, actually we see changes in their methylation profile, implicating some sort of effect that the seminal plasma has had on the sperm itself. 
However, it's also clear that the seminal plasma itself appears to act on the female reproductive tract and influence its secretions, which can also impact on the offspring phenotype. So therefore, any lifestyle changes that might occur to the seminal plasma may further impact not just on the sperm, but also on the uterine environment itself at the time of implantation, which may therefore have ongoing effects on the pregnancy, the growth of the fetus, and ultimately the offspring. I notice we're talking a lot about rodent studies. There's some data from humans, but a lot of this tends to be more solid in our mice and rat friends. What are some of the difficulties in studying these things in people? Yeah, for sure. Most of the work that we have done to date really has been in the animal models and particularly in the rodent models. And really the reason for that is that we can use experimental strategies to isolate the individual time periods. So we can isolate preconception. We can isolate the period immediately after fertilization and during pre-implantation embryo development. Now, obviously, when we're talking in the human, you know, the child is the product of both the maternal and the paternal environment. Preconception as well as the environment during gestation of the mother, as well as lactation is also being shown to affect childhood growth. And so it's very difficult to attribute specific effects to a discrete window. So that's much more difficult and will take more time and more extensive studies in order for us to be able to really understand this precise contribution in terms of the human of each of these discrete windows of pregnancy. You mentioned in your intro that some of these effects last through more than one in gener- more than one generation. Can you give an example of research that's shown that? So the idea that an effect to a parent could actually affect multiple generations is actually quite new. There's been an animal study where it has been shown that if the father is exposed to paternal obesity, that you actually see effects in two generations on the offspring. There's also been studies that have shown that if a mother is exposed to a stress in utero, that that the effects on the fetus is actually transmitted through multiple generations. There's also an epidemiological study on the diet of the grandfather that has shown that it also affects the metabolic health of his grandchildren. At the moment, it's not clear about how this is transmitted across multiple generations, but it's an intriguing findings and something that we really need to understand a lot more than we do currently. Now, one other study you mentioned in the review is this one where the fear of an odor is passed down from parent to child. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, this is actually a very intriguing study where the male mice themselves were exposed to a specific odor and then given a fear stimulus. And then they were mated and produced offspring. And when their offspring were actually given the same odor, they actually had a very similar fear response as their father, showing that this very specific environmental stimuli was actually transmitted to their offspring, which is you know, very, very interesting and something that we, we need to understand a lot more about how something like this could be transmitted to the next generation. Right. I mean, my understanding is that most of the epigenetic marks on both parental sets of DNA are wiped out before conception, but somehow they're carried on maybe to a small degree after that? Yeah, I think that this is really showing a fundamental knowledge gap in terms of what we know about how the very early embryogenic fertilization is actually being reprogrammed. There was a prevailing thought for a long time that basically all of the marks were clear during fertilization. But I think what we're finding with these models where you apply a stimuli to the parent 
and you see an effect on the offspring, is it's clear that at least some aspects of this are escaping that reprogramming and that whilst there might be a large amount of reprogramming, at least in some occasions, some of these marks must be escaping through, persisting into the embryo and therefore affecting the offspring. And really, we don't really currently understand how that is happening and how these are escaping these massive reprogramming events that do occur in both the male and the female pronucleus in the very early stages of fertilization. And so if we don't really understand these marks, like how they're made, what influences them, you know, how can we know how important changes in these marks are or these features are? Well, I think we're beginning to gain some understanding from the work that's being done in animal models that are deliberately manipulating many of these pathways and looking to see what happens in terms of both the embryo as well as the offspring. But these are some of the questions that are currently being answered in many labs around the world at the moment about how is it that an environmental stress makes a change on, on the either the sperm or the oocyte or the early embryo. What are these changes? And likely they'll be multifactorial and it won't just be one specific pathway. And then how are these persisting during these massive waves of reprogramming that occur in the early embryo to influence the developmental trajectory of the embryo and then mm-hmm. ultimately the fetus and the offspring? And the other things that we still don't understand as well is, is how the individual windows really of exposure individually affect the offspring. So how does the preconception environment interact with the gestational environment or the lactational environment? And interesting as well, there's been very little study even on how an environmental insult on the mother, if the father also has a similar environmental insult such as obesity, is there an additive effect on the embryo and the offspring? And these questions are currently unanswered. Michelle, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. It's been wonderful to speak about our research as well as some of the fabulous research that's been done in this area. Michelle Lean and colleagues write about parenting before becoming parents in this week's special issue. You can read her review and more at www.sciencemag.org special parenting. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on more particles in the ocean. A few weeks ago, we had a guest on the podcast talking about seemingly omnipresent microplastics, tiny particles of plastics floating in the ocean everywhere, basically. Now a new study has looked at the content of the very top layer of the ocean and found something different. So, Dave, why look at this uppermost layer? Well, this uppermost layer, Sarah, is called the sea surface microlayer. And uh, nobody's really looked at it before. That's, that was one of the reasons researchers were sort of curious. Usually when scientists look at the sea, they'll just take a big chunk out of the sea. You know, they're not just looking at their very top layer. They're grabbing everything they can. But these scientists suspected that there might be something special going on with this layer, particularly because this layer has very high surface tension, sticky secretions from microbes, And that keeps tiny particles trapped in this layer. And the thought was, well, maybe these are particles that aren't found elsewhere in the ocean. What is the comparison like between this microlayer at the very top and other parts of the ocean? Well, what they found is they found a lot less plastic than they find elsewhere in the ocean. But they found a lot more of compounds called uh, alkalids, which are a binder in paints, also polyester resins which are also used in paints and fiberglass as well. On average, a liter of water from the microlayer contained about 195 
particles, the vast majority were these alkalids and these polyester resins. And this concentration is about 10 to 100 times higher than microplastic particles in water collected by other methods. Plastics can come from, you know, pollution from the shore, pollution from uh, sea traffic. Where do the researchers think that these chemicals or these substances are coming from? Well, they think they're coming from small fishing boats that ply these waters. In fact, there's about 17,000 of these boats in the area where the researchers took their samples. What was really interesting is the fragments that they looked at tended to be dark green and dark blue in color, which are typical colors for these boats. The concern with microplastics in general is that they absorb toxic materials and that these substances can then enter the food chain. Is there a similar concern for these paint fragments and resins? Well, there's a concern that uh, zooplankton, which are these tiny creatures that live in the ocean, might be eating them, and this might be toxic to them. And zooplankton are actually a really important part of the marine food web. So this is a potential concern. And the next step for the researchers is to look at the metals and the organic chemicals and the paint particles to determine whether they can actually harm marine life. Next up, we have a story on progress towards a hypoallergenic nut. Peanuts and tree nuts are a big no-no on playgrounds and in school cafeterias these days due to the fear of sometimes severe reactions in allergic kids. At this point, avoiding nuts is the only path to avoiding these reactions. Dave, how common are these types of allergies? Well, in the U.S. alone, 19 million adults and children have these allergies. So they're actually a pretty serious concern, at least in this country. What exactly happens when an allergic person comes into contact with a nut? Well, what happens is their immune system recognizes specific proteins that are found on the surface of the nut, and then an antibody called immunoglobulin E latches on to these proteins and causes a reaction, an allergic reaction. Sometimes this can just be mild itching. Sometimes it can be life-threatening anaphylaxis, which includes things like itchy rash, throat swelling, and low blood pressure. In this study we're talking about today, the idea is to stop triggering this immune response by tackling these proteins. What do the researchers do to alter the nuts? Well, they hit the nuts with a potent combination of heat and sodium sulfite. This is a chemical that's often used in food preservation, so it's safe, but it also tends to break down proteins into smaller pieces. And the researchers hope that if they could modify the proteins on the nuts to this extent, that maybe the immunoglobulin E would not recognize them anymore, and then people wouldn't have this allergic reaction. And the IgE did bind these proteins less, about 50%, but it didn't completely stop. What's the cutoff that would make nuts safe for allergy sufferers? Well, it turns out even the tiniest amount of IgE binding could potentially cause a severe allergic reaction. So a 50% reduction, as one expert says, is really just not going to cut it. You're going to need 100% reduction. But this is still an important advance because researchers were able to show that they could start to modify these proteins. And even more importantly, what they were using, the heat and sodium sulfite, both of these are safe. So they're not using toxic chemicals to do this. So the hope is that this may be the first step in creating a safe way to modify nuts that make them safe for people with allergies to eat. Last up, we have a story on some world-saving worms. About 570 million years ago, Cells were just getting together and acting cooperatively. And it turns out that these early multicellular organisms had a big impact on the future of the planet. Dave, can you describe the precarious state of life back in the early Cambrian period? Well, 
what was really precarious was the level of oxygen. It had to be at just this right balance. Otherwise, animal life couldn't evolve. If you had too little oxygen, obviously all of these nascent animals are going to suffocate. But too much, and you're going to have things like catastrophic fires, which feed on oxygen, and that would torch the primordial land vegetation, which wouldn't be very good for animals either. And in this new study, researchers have come up with a pretty ingenious idea about how this oxygen balance was achieved. What was the role that worms might have played? (laughs) Well, their key organism was some worms, maybe some as long as about 40 centimeters, that burrowed and wiggled in the seafloor, in the ground of the sea. And as these worms wriggled and burrowed, they exposed new layers of the seafloor to the ocean's water. Now, what that did was that each batch of new sediment that settles onto the seafloor contains bacteria. These bacteria were exposed to the oxygen in the water. They began storing a chemical called phosphate in their cells. So as the creatures, as these worms, as they churned up more and more sediment layers, you have more and more phosphate building up in the ocean sediments and less in seawater. Now, why is that important? It's important because algae and other photosynthetic life require phosphate to grow. And so if you remove phosphate from the seawater, you reduce their growth, which means less photosynthesis, and that in turn means less oxygen released into the ocean. That's a very complicated process, but what it suggests is that these worms were really important in keeping oxygen levels down. Now, they couldn't get down too low because if the oxygen got too low, the worms would start dying. So you sort of had this feedback loop that allowed the worms to be the mediators of a decent amount of oxygen in the ocean, but not too much and not too little. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what kind of cosmic dust the Stardust spacecraft brought back to Earth. Also a story about whether whales and dolphins squeal with delight. For Science Center, our policy blog, we are doing extensive coverage of the Ebola situation that's unfolding, including stories about experimental drugs that are being used to treat Ebola and one scientist's first encounter with the disease. Also a story about why geneticists are decrying a book on race and evolution. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.